Welcome to week two of our summer series that we are calling Law School. And if you weren't here last week when Pastor Ryan introduced it, let me just explain. We are calling it that because we are going to be spending a total of 10 weeks working our way through the law of God, otherwise known as the Ten Commandments. Now, I have a confession, though, to make before we go any further. Last week, when Ryan introduced this series, I was sitting out there in the congregation, and two seats away from me, there was someone sitting, and when Ryan said, we're going to be going through the Ten Commandments, this person's reaction, and and this is verbatim, was, yes, (laughs) which, of course, is the ideal response when we stand up here and tell you we're going to be doing a series through the Ten Commandments. Here's the confession part, though. If, if I had no inside scoop on this teaching series and I was just sitting out there blind to what was about to happen and I heard that we're about to spend 10 weeks in the Ten Commandments, I can guarantee you my response would have been the exact opposite of that. Instead of yes, it would have been no. Let me just prep myself to feel just awful for the next 10 weeks. And as funny as that is, the reason I tell it is because I think in general, that's probably how most people, Christian and non-Christian alike, probably feel when we hear anything related to commandments, obedience, authority. Not only do we live in a culture that just bristles at the idea of living under anybody's authority or not being true to ourselves, even within the church, we sometimes bristle at this idea of God commanding us to do anything because we, we rightly believe in the gospel which says we can't earn His love by obeying commands. It's a free gift of grace. In other words, in the church, out of the church, nobody really likes restrictions. And that really gets to the heart behind this series. Last week, Ryan called it our thesis statement. It's kind of what, what's underneath this entire series, the point of it. So let me just repeat it this week. Here it is. True freedom is not the absence of restrictions, but the presence of the right restrictions. I'm going to say that one more time because this is our guiding philosophy for the total of these 10 weeks. True freedom is not the absence of restrictions, but the presence of of the right ones. And and that idea, not only do we very much believe it's biblical, we also believe it's very observable. Even if you're here and you don't buy into the Bible, you can just look around you and see this truth in action. I don't think this is an overstatement. We live in what is probably a society that has less restrictions than any other society in history. Just just think about a few examples of this. We we can meet people and learn new ideas with with just a touch of a screen without ever leaving the comfort of our own homes. We have access to and often waste absurd amounts of food and drink. And then lastly, beliefs and practices which until about yesterday were judged morally prohibited are now not only permitted but celebrated and legitimized. The point of saying all that, the the irony behind that is, is we've torn down all these restrictions, we've removed all these limits, and we don't find ourselves any more free. If anything, we are just as, if not more, enslaved when it comes to the deep things of life that really matter. Our society is addicted, lonely, depressed, divided, unfulfilled. I could quote you a whole bunch of studies to prove that, but I don't need to because we all know it in our hearts and just looking around us. We're witnessing what Scripture teaches, which is the absence of restrictions does not lead to freedom. The good news is the presence of the right restrictions does lead to freedom. And we believe God gives us a snapshot of those liberating restrictions in His Ten Commandments. So today, we're looking at commandment number two. And I'm just going to go ahead and read it to you as God spoke it to Moses on Mount Sinai. It says this, 
You shall not, or you may know it better as, thou shalt not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now, that's a direct quote from the book of Exodus where God originally gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, but Moses actually gives us a much, much more extended treatment of the second commandment in the book of Deuteronomy. So really, our main passage today where we're going to hang out for most of our time is Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 24. So let's just go ahead and read that passage before we dive in. Again, it's Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 24. Here's what Moses says after God reveals it to him. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself. So there's the second commandment again. Don't make carved images. In the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that's on earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that's in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God, which is a very sobering note to start a sermon on. So let's, let's look at this. We're, we're going to be answering or trying to answer three questions today about the second commandment, and Deuteronomy 4 is going to help us do that. The three questions, and they're going to form the structure of this teaching, are as follows. Number one, what does the second commandment mean? Number two, why does God command it? And then lastly, how do we actually go about obeying it so that we can experience this freedom we're talking about of living within our Creator's perfect design? So let's start with that first question. What does the second commandment actually mean? I'm a big believer that if you're going to be teaching something, you need to start by defining your terms so that we're all on the same page. This is especially important in this case because at first glance, the second commandment looks very similar to the first commandment. If you weren't here last week or even if you were, let me just jog your memory. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, don't worship idols. All right. Second commandment, which I've already said a couple times, let me say it one more time, is don't make any carved images to worship or serve. So, no worshiping idols, which really sounds like they're saying the exact same thing. The question is, are they? And the simple answer is no, because then there'd only be nine commandments, and that doesn't sound as cool as ten commandments. But it's also because the Bible itself shows us here in Deuteronomy before exactly how they're different. They really are two separate commands, although they have some connection. So in Deuteronomy 4, verses 15 through 16, Moses gives us a better idea of how the second commandment's actually different. Here's what he says. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, 
Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself. So verse 16, he's just recapping the second commandment again. What I really want to do is draw your attention to verse 15, how Moses introduces this commandment. What he's doing there is reminding the nation of Israel that he's speaking to about how God originally gave them the Ten Commandments. What happened on that day is God told him to have the whole nation gather at the foot of Mount Sinai, which which here in this verse he calls Horeb. And, And we're told when they gathered on that day, the Lord came down on the mountain accompanied by fire lightning, thunder, thick cloud, and that the whole mountain shook. But here in Deuteronomy 4, Moses is reminding the people that despite all of those visible and physical sensations, God himself did not appear to them in any form that they could see. Instead, they just heard his voice speaking to them. So now Moses says, since that's the case, since you saw no form, You should beware of making any carved image for yourself. So notice what he's doing there. He is linking the making of carved images, not with the worship of a false god, but with the worship of the true God who revealed himself on Mount Sinai. And that really gets us to the heart of what the second commandment means and how it's different than the first one. The first commandment, here's a way to think about it. The first commandment's all about not worshiping false gods. The second commandment is all about not worshiping the true God falsely. Let me say that one more time. The first commandment is don't worship false gods. The second commandment is don't worship the true God falsely. Don't create images of him since he himself didn't give you those images. Now, I imagine at this point the temptation for some of us, because this is, I think, is where I would be, the temptation would be to hear that explanation and just say, phew, you know. I'm off the hook. It's not like I have a shrine at my house with statues of God or pictures of God. So I can just check this one off as complete. I can leave. I can have lunch. I'm done with the second commandment. Of course, the second commandment doesn't mean less than that, but it certainly means more than that. And let me just quote the esteemed Christian scholar John Stott here. He said it way better than I ever could. Here's what he said. We may never have manufactured some gruesome metal images with our hands, but what hideous mental image do we hold in our minds? Now, if that doesn't nail you to the wall, I don't know what will. It certainly nails me to the wall. Now we're getting somewhere to the second commandment. It all boils down to this. God is forbidding us from imagining him to be something different than what he's actually revealed himself to be. So I think it would be helpful to pause at this point and just ask, well, what does that actually look like in today's world? I mean, it's pretty easy to see what it looked like for Israel, for Moses. Like, don't make statues. Okay, got it. But for me and for you, for modern people, how do we actually go about creating these false mental images of the God of the Bible? Again, Deuteronomy 4 points us in the right direction here. In verses 16 through 18, Moses just gives us this really long list of forbidden images. But then in verse 19... He just pauses, and he lingers over some very specific images. I want you to listen to it in verse 19. He says, And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. So the question is, why is Moses giving such special attention to the sun, moon, and stars as potential false images. And and the answer is actually pretty simple. It's because the Israelites had literally, like yesterday, just left a country and a culture where those things, especially the sun, were worshiped and venerated. 
For example, Amun-Ra was the chief god of Egypt at this time who was a sun god. Here's the point of saying all of that. The false images that we are most in danger of projecting onto the true God are the images that are the most prevalent and powerful in our own unique experience. For Israel, it was the sun, moon, and stars. That's the culture they just come out of. That's what the Egyptians were doing. For us, it's going to look a lot different depending on your unique experience. This could manifest itself in literally hundreds, if not thousands of different ways. But let me just walk you through a few examples to to get us going here. This can be very personal. If you grew up with abusive parents, then you may be in danger of imagining God to be mean or unapproachable. Or if you've experienced a lot of personal loss or poverty, then you may be in danger of imagining God to be stingy, unreliable, or just ready to abandon you at the drop of a hat. It can also be very cultural. If you're of a generation that grew up in a culture that very much valued hard work and earning your own keep, then you may be in danger of imagining God to be the kind of God who only helps those who help themselves. Or let's go to a a different side of that coin. Maybe you've grown up in a culture that very much values autonomy and self-expression. If that's you, you may be in danger of imagining God to be permissive and not exactly interested in holding anybody accountable. However that may manifest in your life, the point is we all need to become more intentionally aware of how our own experiences, personal and cultural, shape the way that we view God and project these false images onto Him. So now we know that the second commandment is basically forbidding us to imagine God other than how He actually is, but that's really only half of the commandment. There's actually a second part to the second commandment. You you actually already heard it. Let Let me draw your attention to it. In verse 19, After he tells the Israelites not to worship the sun, moon, or stars as false images, he ends by saying, beware lest you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. So the second commandment is not just don't make false images, it's also don't worship or serve them. In other words, false images always lead to false worship. So so go back to some of the examples that that I just gave a second ago. If because of your own unique experiences, you you have a problem with viewing God as stingy or unreliable, then you may have a very hard time worshiping Him and serving His people with generosity and commitment. Let's do another one. If you view God as mainly abusive and distant because of your own unique experiences, then you're probably going to have a hard time worshiping Him through song and through praise. Last one. If you view God as mainly permissive and not interested in accountability, you're going to have a very hard time probably worshiping Him through obedience. The point is distorted and weak images always lead to distorted and weak worship and service. The question that we have to face is do we know ourselves well enough to figure out how we're doing that because our hearts are naturally drawn away to do that. This takes a lot of asking God to search us and being willing to be honest with ourselves so that we can identify these false images and how we go about falsely worshiping God. That's the second commandment and what it means. The next most foundational question is, well, why? Why does God even care what I think about Him or how I worship? And shouldn't I just get points for trying? I mean, why do I need to obey this command? Why does God forbid false images, and that's our second major idea today. And God gives us a very clear answer that we can't avoid at the end of our passage here in Deuteronomy 4. So the question is, why does God forbid false images? Here's his answer in verses 23 through 24. 
Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden you. We're going to talk a lot about carved images. Don't know if you noticed that yet. Moses is repeating that a lot. The the reason he's repeating it a lot is because our hearts are so naturally drawn to do this. And so again, he repeats it one more time, but now he gives us the reason why. Why shouldn't we make these carved images? Verse 24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now that statement, that, that description, the Lord your God is a jealous God, God himself actually said that when he originally gave the Ten Commandments to Moses in Exodus chapter 20. He said it at the end of the second commandment, but but when you read it in that context, it's actually really clear that it was meant as a summary statement of both the first and the second commandment. In other words, what God is saying is don't worship false gods and don't worship me falsely because I am jealous. So the question is, what does that actually mean? And the reason I think it's important to just make sure we're clear on this is because I've talked to more than one person who has told me they have a problem with this specific attribute of God. And their line of thinking goes like this. I thought the Bible taught that jealousy is a bad thing. Like, we we teach our toddlers not to be jealous, right? So then how can God describe himself as jealous? Which is actually a really fair question. So let's just dig into that for just a minute. I've got three separate little answers to that. It'll just take me a second. How can God describe himself as jealous? Number one, the first thing to understand is the Bible does not always speak of jealousy as a bad thing. That's actually a a misunderstanding. Let me give you a couple of examples. We could give lots more. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, writing his first letter to the Corinthian church, says to them, love is not jealous. So there's the negative side. Don't do that. That's bad. But then in his very next letter to that same church, the letter called 2 Corinthians, so we've got the same church, same author, he says to them, I have a divine jealousy for you. Same Greek word. What that means is the Apostle Paul knew what we all know. He wasn't some unsophisticated ancient person. He knew that words have different meanings in different contexts, so he could use them in that way. That's the the first thing to understand. The second thing, however, is is when God describes himself as jealous throughout the Old Testament, in the passage we just read and in other passages, the Hebrew word that's used there is only ever used to describe God. It's never used of humans, which meshes really well with what I just told you about the Apostle Paul. There is this human kind of jealousy, which very often is not good. Sometimes it can be. But then there is this divine God kind of jealousy, which is always good and always right. And that leaves us with the question then, well, what is it actually? And that's the third thing I want to say. The the Hebrew word that God uses to describe himself as jealous literally means to bear no rivals. Or as one commentator put it, to assert one's rights. And I'm going to make a statement that will shock absolutely nobody. We live in a culture obsessed with rights. And generally speaking, that's a good thing. It's certainly better than the alternative of just having no rights. It is true. We believe this in the church, and people believe this outside the church. Human beings have certain rights simply by virtue of being human, regardless of their race or their gender or their socioeconomic class or their sexual preferences. If you're human, you have rights. By the way, let me just pause there for a second and say, where do you think that idea came from? I'll give you a hint. It's not the way the world worked before Jesus. But I digress. Let's go back. Follow my logic for a second. 
if humans, if we can all agree, which I think we do, if humans have certain rights simply by virtue of being humans, and therefore it's good for them to assert those rights, then logically, if we grant that a God exists who made these humans, wouldn't he have rights too? Let's go a step further. If by definition God is totally unique, all-powerful, perfectly pure, then wouldn't his rights be greater than our rights? And then therefore, final chain here, final link in the chain, therefore wouldn't it be good and right for God to assert those rights and not allow any rival God or image to attempt to take them away? Obviously, the answer is yes. I realize, though, that all of that is some really heady stuff. So let me just bring it down to street level for you by just giving you a couple of thought experiments. They're similar, but at the end of the day, they're different. Here's my first thought experiment. Imagine a husband cheats on his wife with another woman. I didn't tell you they're going to be fun, Um, but here we go. I don't know anybody in that situation who would argue that the wife would be wrong to feel jealous. Why? Because by definition, she should have sole rights to her husband's romantic love and intimacy. Being a wife, at the very least, means that. She has rights. She should assert them. She should bear no rivals when it comes to her marriage. And that's basically a picture of the first commandment. God made us. He made a way for us to be saved. Over and over throughout Scripture, He refers to His people as His bride. By definition, He has a right to our love, our worship, and obedience, and should not be expected to bear or compete with any rival gods for our love, worship, and obedience. It is good for Him to be jealous in that regard. All right, first commandment, first thought experiment. Let's do another one. I'm going to swap the roles of husband and wife this time just to be fair and make sure everybody feels super uncomfortable. If you don't like this, when I first went over it with my wife, she's the one that told me to swap these roles. So here we go. I'm, I got a lot of disclaimers on the beginning of this little illustration because I'm, I'm scared to give it. Here we go. Just bear with me, folks. Imagine a wife who never cheats on her husband. Just wait. Never cheats on her husband with another man. Instead, She begins to get frustrated and embarrassed by who her husband is, especially his job. He's a mechanic. And before anybody gets mad because they're a mechanic, my father is a mechanic, my father-in-law is a mechanic. I have a lot of respect for mechanics, but this lady is not happy with it. But he works hard, helps pay the bills, does his best to show show his wife and his kids the attention and the love that they deserve. But she really, really wishes that he were a doctor, so much so that she begins to tell all of her friends He's a doctor. She begins to spend their money like he's a doctor. And then, this is the worst of all, she begins to ask him to diagnose her friend's medical conditions so that she can impress them. Now, here's a rhetorical question. Not really expecting an answer here. If you're that husband, how should you feel? First answer that would come out of my mouth is disturbed and worried. But lastly, jealous, right? Listen, she may not be in love with another man, but she is in love with an imaginary man, the man that she wants him to be instead of the man he is. You didn't know this was a marriage sermon. I just slid that right in there. She is not right to ask him to perform things that are contrary to who he is, spend money they don't have, or misrepresent him to her friends. He has rights, and it's okay to assert them. He doesn't have to compete or should not compete with a fake Rival. Now, that's the second commandment. It makes absolutely no sense 
for the God who lovingly made us and served us, for us to just imagine Him to be what He actually isn't, and then expecting things from Him that He doesn't do, or misrepresenting Him, or using the resources He's given us in a way that's inconsistent with who He is. God is jealous in that way, and He should be. It is good for Him to be that way. All right, let's drill down a little bit deeper here. Everything we've said so far is really making the point that God is jealous for His own good and His own glory, and that's right. But He's also good, excuse me, He's also jealous for us, for our good and our glory. We see this in Deuteronomy 4, 19 through 20. I'm going to read these to you. We've already read verse 19, but what I really want you to pay attention to this time is the comparison that Moses is making between two different groups of people. Listen to what he says. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. So we've heard this already. He's warning them, don't worship God with false images. But listen to his reason why. Because these are things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Hold on to that phrase. All the peoples under the whole heaven. And look at how it contrasts with what he's about to say in verse 20. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Do you see here how Moses is very explicitly drawing our attention to the difference between Israel and all other people? God chose Israel out of all the peoples under the whole heaven to be special to him. But if they begin to worship the sun and the moon and the stars as false images, then they forfeit that special relationship. And and it's clear why, because if God is the sun or the moon or the stars, then He is no longer their unique God, Yahweh, the Lord, who rescued them out of Egypt. And therefore, they are no longer a people of His own inheritance, but instead are just like all people under the whole heaven. That is the cruel irony of false images. We, We look to these images to reveal something to us about God, but they conceal more than they reveal. And I have to thank the late Tim Keller for that turn of phrase. They conceal more than they reveal. The Israelites probably thought, you know, if if we look at the sun, that really shows us. It's a great picture of how brilliant God is, how glorious He is, how bright He is, and all those things. It, It revealed those things to Him. But you know what it concealed? You know what it could never reveal to them? That God is the type of God who can set them free from slavery in Egypt. If we worship God for who we imagine Him to be, we lose who He really is. And because He's the one who made it all, if we lose who He really is, then we ultimately begin to lose touch with reality itself. When we begin to lie to ourselves about who God is, we then begin very slowly to lie to ourselves about who we are and about how the world around us really works. So God's jealousy for His own good and glory is at the same time a jealousy for our good and our glory. Now, if we were to stop this message right here, I hope that what you would have is a lot of information and a lot of motivation to destroy your false images of God, which is great, but that's really only half the battle. You know, all of these commandments are worded in a negative way. The second commandment says, don't make false images, but really they're meant to make us think of positive things. Well, if I'm not to worship false images, here's the positive question, what is the right image? That's really where we have to turn our attention to. Now, I can pull down all these false images, but what is God really like? And therefore, how should I properly 
worship Him. And of course, that brings us to our final question today, which is how do we actually go about obeying this second command? And we've actually already read the answer to this in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 4. So let me read it again, and I'll draw your attention to that specific part of it. Here's what it says. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. When, when God decided to reveal himself to his people on Mount Sinai, he didn't give them a physical, visible form, but what he did do was speak to them. He gave them words. That's what the Ten Commandments are. It's God revealing who He is. That's really what the whole Bible is, God revealing His true nature through words. And when you think about it, that is always the way that we come to really know a real person. When I met my wife, Tiffany, I was very much attracted to her physical outward beauty. Still am, by the way. Check. Got that one. (laughs) Deposit. I'm going to... I'm going to come to withdraw that later. <laughs> Let's pray together. Uh, <laughs> so when I first met Tiffany, I was attracted to her outward physical beauty. But I didn't truly get to know who she was until we began talking, until I listened to her speak, found out what she likes and dislikes, found out what makes her laugh, what makes her cry, what drives her, what gives her passion. All of that came through and still comes through her words. That's the way all true human relationships work. We know this. You don't have to be Christian to know this. We know this, but the Christian Scriptures shed light on why this is true, because we are all made in the image of a God who reveals Himself through words. So if we want to know what God is really like, so we have the right image of Him, this is going to sound simplistic, but it is the answer. We have to read and understand the words He's given us through Scripture. Piece of cake, right? Go home, read your Bibles, end of sermon. Not that simple, is it? I mean, this everybody's seen a Bible. There's a lot of words in this thing, right? This is not... Coming to know God through His words, like knowing any other kind of person, is never just a one-time easy thing. It is a never-ending journey. But that doesn't mean that we just have to wait eternity to get this clear, big-picture view of who God really is. As a matter of fact, right here in this story of God giving Israel His law, God also decides to give them what we can call a summary statement of who He really is at the deepest level. This is such an important revelation of His nature that it actually gets repeated throughout the Old Testament in one form or another. So here's how it goes. Moses receives these Ten Commandments on top of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. If you fast forward to Exodus 34, he's still up there on Mount Sinai, and now he's asked God to reveal his glory to him. The Hebrew word for glory literally means something like weightiness. So God's glory is his weight. It's his essence. It's who he is at his core. And true to fashion, God does this. He he displays His glory to Moses, not with some visible manifestation, but by speaking to him, by giving him words. And I want you to listen to what he says. This is God's summary statement of who He is. We see it in Exodus 34, 6 through 7. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth 
generation. One of the major ways that most people, even mature Christians, project false images onto God is by misplacing him on the spectrum between love and judgment. Here's what I mean by that. Some of us in our image of God, we veer toward the one extreme of viewing him as mainly all love, no judgment. Others of us veer to the other extreme, he's all judgment, no love, and then there's lots of other ways in between those two extremes. So so we might think that the right way to view God is just put him in the middle, right? He's 50% love, 50% judgment. But that is also a false image. That That is forcing an artificial balance on God that he himself never claimed. Did you hear how he just described himself? Remember, this is him describing his weightiness, who he is at his core. He could have reached for a thousand different descriptors, but what he does on the front end is he just piles up all these descriptions of his love. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, keeping love for thousands, forgiving iniquity. It's only at the end, it's almost like an afterthought that he even mentions judgment. And even then, his judgment pales in comparison to his love. We're told that he will keep love for thousands, but only visit iniquity to the third and the fourth generation. So when God decides to reveal his weight, his essence, he doesn't feel the need to balance his love and judgment because that's not who he is. He does judge. He does have anger. He does have wrath. But those things are not the beat of his heart. The beat of his heart for you and for me is love. It is grace. Let's just pause on that for a minute. Let that simmer for a second. This is why we call it amazing grace. This is why we say how sweet the sound Many of you have probably heard the quote before from the book of Isaiah about God's thoughts are not our thoughts, they're higher than ours. If you read that in context, do you know what he's talking about? He's talking about how God is loving enough to forgive us. What he's saying is, you don't think that way, but I do. Human beings don't act that way, but I do. His grace is amazing. But as amazing as it is, it's still, if we're honest, it's still a little bit abstract, isn't it? Because we have to ask, well, what does, what does mercy and love and faithfulness, what do those things actually look like in practice? Wouldn't it be great if God's words actually took on flesh so we could see them in action? And, and wouldn't, it be, wouldn't it be great if grace were a person? Spoiler alert, I think you know where I'm going with this. That's exactly what the New Testament tells us that Jesus is. Let me just read you a few verses here. In John 1.14, the Apostle John describes Jesus as the Word become flesh, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And then in Colossians 1, 15, we're told Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God has forbid us from having wrong images, but He has given us the right image, and Jesus is the right image. Lastly, Titus 2, 11, for the grace of God has appeared. It has become visible, bringing salvation to all people. Here's my point. God hasn't merely revealed himself in words of grace spoken to his prophets or words of grace written on a page. He has ultimately revealed himself in his word of grace made flesh. What that means is that if you want to know the God who designed you in his image, the only one who can give you real freedom, if you want to identify and tear down every false and powerless image that you project onto him, 
If you want to know what it looks like to properly worship and serve Him, if you want to be true to who you really are and understand the reality of the world around you, you have to look to Jesus. He gets the final word because He is the final word. And the word, this this blows my mind and gives me so much comfort, the word that He communicates more than anything else is grace because He is grace made visible. And that is really, really good news. Because if, if we zoom out from the second commandment and zoom out from the Ten Commandments in general and just get honest for a second and ask how we're doing keeping them, that's not great. I know I can say that for myself. I think I can speak for everybody else. We, we try so hard, and we should try. I'm, I'm telling you we should try. We're doing a whole series on the Ten Commandments, and yet no matter how hard we try, we always fall short. And if it's any comfort to you, even God acknowledges this in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Immediately after Moses tells us that the Lord is a jealous God, He's a consuming fire, He goes on to describe in the rest of that passage in Deuteronomy 4 how God will punish His people if they fail to keep His commands. In verse 26, we're told in no uncertain terms, they will be utterly destroyed. But then, just a few verses later, Moses transitions from talking about if that happens, to when it happens. In other words, God knows and He's revealing to Moses that that these people that he, He saved out of slavery, He called them to be His own unique inheritance. He knows that ultimately they are fallen, broken, sinful people who are going to fail Him. It is not just a matter of if, but a matter of when. So the question is, what will God ultimately do with His people's disobedience and failure? And we get the answer in Deuteronomy 4, 30 through 31. Here's what it says. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, all these punishments for your disobedience, you will return to the Lord your God and obey His voice. Now, if you stop there, you would think, oh, they figured it out themselves. They pulled themselves up. They're good people. That's not why they're going to return. Look at why they're going to return to the Lord in verse 31. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you. You left him, he will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. What will God do in the face of our disobedience and failure? He will have mercy on his children because that's who he is at his core for his children. But notice the tension here. We can't get away from it. Just a few verses ago, I told you this, verse 26, Moses clearly tells us that when you disobey, you will be utterly destroyed. But now in verse 31, he tells us, God will not destroy you. What we're seeing there is the tension that every good parent feels when their child has disobeyed and dishonored them. On one hand, the the, the disobedience, the dishonor, it has to be punished. But on the other hand, my deepest desire is to love and forgive my children. And Jesus, just like He shows us the true image of God in every other way, Jesus is the one who shows us how this tension within God is ultimately resolved, how His love and judgment, His grace and jealousy meet. And here's how it works. Because we make false images of God, we deserve to be utterly destroyed by the God who calls Himself a consuming fire. But Jesus, who is the true image of God, allowed Himself to be destroyed on our behalf by dying on the cross so that now if we place our trust in Him, we aren't consumed 
Our sin is consumed. Our guilt is consumed. Our shame is consumed. Death itself is consumed. And then we are set free not only to obey God's commands, but listen to this. We are set free even to fail in obeying God's commands without the fear of losing his love. And that is the only kind of freedom that will actually give us the power to get back up and to grow in obedience. So what we're seeing on the cross is that is the place where God ultimately reveals his glory, not in words, but in flesh and blood, not only to Moses, but to all of us. The cross is God declaring what he declared in Exodus 34, but in 3D, in vivid detail. I am the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping love for thousands, forgiving their iniquity. That's what the cross speaks to us. That is the true image of our glorious God. When you, when you understand the Ten Commandments and the Second Commandment in the light of that, in the light of Jesus and what He's done for you, then you don't have to hang your head and feel ashamed and feel bad about yourself. You can pump your fist and say, yes. Because in Jesus, these commandments aren't the way that you earn God's love. You already have that. These are the way that you experience the freedom he's called you to live in instead of the slavery that we so often place upon ourselves. Now, technically that is the conclusion to my teaching, but you probably noticed that today is Communion Sunday. So I just want to spend a minute trying to connect what we just learned with our heads and our hearts to what we're about to do with our hands and our bodies. Most of you at this point, I'm just going to tell a little story and you'll see where I'm going with this. Most of you at this point, I'm sure are aware uh, of the submersible that tragically imploded last week uh, with five men on board. All of them lost their life as they were trying to visit the underwater wreckage of the Titanic. And I I was thinking about that this week and, and the more I thought about it, Listen, there's all kinds of opinions. Um, You know, they shouldn't have done that. What a silly way to risk your life. And I've had my own opinions. Everybody's got an opinion. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized, had I been offered a seat on that sub to go on a -a once-in-a-lifetime journey where almost nobody else has ever been to visit this, this ship that has captivated people for over a century, if I'd been given that opportunity before this tragedy happened, I probably would have said yes. The question that we have to ask is why? Why do people, me or anybody else, why is there such a draw to visit the wreckage of the Titanic at such risk to your life? And there's lots of reasons, lots of answers to that depending on who you ask, but I I was listening to a historian, a Titanic expert this week, and he gave an answer that I think has a lot to say to us about more than just the Titanic. He said that ultimately people do this very often because of what he calls the psychology of pilgrimage. Which, which what he means by that is, is this is the psychology that underlies why people visit sacred sites in general, whether it be a grave, whether it be a holy site, whether it be the Titanic. And the psychology goes like this. It's a belief that physical proximity to something leads to a greater emotional connectivity to it. In other words, the closer people they believe this, the closer I actually get to the physical Titanic, the greater the emotional connection I will have to it. The sad reality, however, is, according to the same historian, the view that you would get at the bottom of the ocean, looking through that submersible porthole, the view that you would get is darker, blurrier, and a whole lot less clear than the view that you and I could get on our computer screens at home. Not only that, 
But this connection that they think they're going to get is ultimately a false one because what they're wanting to be connected to is the, is the glory of the ship, the tragedy of the ship, its victims, its survivors, but none of those things are at the bottom of the ocean. There's only a shell of what they're actually seeking. Now, I'm going to tell you why I told that story. I'm going to go ahead and have the worship team come up as I do that. The point of the story is not to, to blame these people and to tell you how, how foolish these five men were. That's not the point of the story at all. Actually, the point of the story is to highlight just how foolish all of us are on a much greater scale when it comes to the way that we treat God. You see, when we're left to our own devices, we believe that in order to be more emotionally connected to God, who can feel so distant, so, so deep down away from us, in order to be more emotionally connected with Him, we have to reach for these images that are much closer at hand, that are much familiar to us. The tragedy is that even though those images are nearer, they are never clearer. They're distorted and ultimately dangerous and destructive and powerless to give us this connection with God that we're really looking for. And the reason is simple. God is not in those images. It's just a shell of what we're looking for. The good news is we do not have to risk our lives trying to get a better image of God so we can be better connected to Him because the true image of God, Jesus, already gave His life so that we could be connected to Him like never before. And that's what we remember when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's why the Bible actually calls it a communion. That means a sharing, a joining, a being connected. When we take this bread and we take this cup, we are declaring that God is not far. He is near. When we take these things into our body, we're symbolizing that God is in us. His very Spirit has been given to us and joined us and connected us with Jesus' death and resurrection, which means that now we have died to sin and condemnation but we are alive to love and worship and obey the God who calls us his own special inheritance. That's communion. Part of that song always gets me to think where I would be. If not for you, it reminds me of when Jesus looked at his disciples and said, will you also leave? And they said, where would we go? Where would we go? We have the true image of God. Why would we go to false ones? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul makes a link between idolatry and communion. Here's what he says in verses 14 through 16. So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I'm speaking to you as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I'm saying. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing, a joining, a connection to the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? We can flee false images only because we have the true one and he gave his life for us. But beyond that, he now invites us to come participate in it. So let us take the bread and the cup. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. You didn't leave us without a witness of yourself. You didn't even just leave us with a partial revelation of yourself but sent your very own son in flesh and blood to show us what you're really like. What that means is you want us to know you. What an amazing concept that the God of the universe who needs nothing and depends on no one, that you want us and you want to have relationship with us so much so that you are willing to send your son. He was willing to come and devoid himself of his glory and become obedient even to death on a cross. Thank you for Jesus. My prayer 
is that we would honor him and honor you for who you truly are by tearing down our false images. I pray that as this week goes forward, as time goes forward, for the rest of our lives, really, that your spirit would reveal to us just how we are projecting these false views on you because of our own experiences or baggage. Help us to see these things clearly and give us the power to tear them down, but not just to tear them down, but to replace them with a true vision of who you really are in your word and in Christ. Thank you for giving us Jesus. Now, God, go with us this week. Help us to worship you properly, to be who you've created us to be and to live in freedom. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Church, thank you. Have a good week, and I hope to see you back here next Sunday.